Hi, so in this video we're going to be talking about how industrialization affected non-European countries. So more specifically we'll be looking at the Ottoman Empire, the Chinese Qing Dynasty, and Japan during the 1750s to around 1900. And so the sections of this podcast will be first looking at some general characteristics of successful empires during this time, and then looking at how the Ottomans, Chinese, and Japanese were influenced by Western industrialization, and lastly comparing the Ottoman Empire to the Chinese Empire and how they reacted to industrialization, and then at the very end, we'll have a conclusion. So, yeah, all right. Alright, so the first section is looking at general patterns that occurred in various empires doing during the industrial era. So the first thing is that there's a shift in government. And so when whereas before we had traditional autocratic monarchies where the monarch or the emperor has a lot of power, now we're switching over to more political representation. So for example, in places like Britain where you have the parliament that acts as a check to the emperor's power. The next thing you have is industrialization. And so rather than having a agricultural-based society, you're focusing more on things like industry, commerce, and urbanization as more people move to cities to work in factories. And feudalism and mercantilism also start, their influence starts to decrease as capitalism arises. And then we also have reform in the social structure. So rather than having hereditary nobles, you have a new middle class, and then there's prestige for people who are more wealthy. So it's not about whether or not your father owned a castle or whatnot. And then we also have, like said earlier, the rise of the middle class, and as well as a lot of population growth, because we have more sanitation as well as new food resources, like potatoes from the new world. And lastly, there's a more secular secular worldview, where it's not as religiously based. And so many European countries, so thinking like Britain, France, and also kind of America, but they rise as dominant powers during this time. And because of this, they want to extend their influence to other countries around the world. So this is what leads them to influence the Ottoman Empire, the Chinese Emperor, and also this idea of imperialism. So they want to get raw materials and they want to have money, more economic power via trade. And they do this um, by using their modern weapons and gunpowder. So that's how they manage to kind of influence other countries. So these are just some general patterns that you see in successful empires during this time. All right, so first looking at the Ottoman Empire. So some background information. So remembering that in the beginning, when the Ottoman Empire was really getting started, we had it reached its peak under Suleiman the Great, where he had this really efficient army of Janissaries who were basically Christian boys who they kidnapped from other of their cities. And then they also had powerful sultans. And so, in fact, their army went all the way up to Vienna. And so what we have during this modern period is that the Ottoman Empire, their power starts to decline. And so they actually get the nickname of the sick man of Europe. And so the reasons why are because they have overexpansion. So they really spread throughout the Middle East and then North Africa, Europe, etc. But the problem is that their sultans aren't really as strong anymore and so they can't govern all of this land effectively. In addition, the trade also goes down and the sultan leadership it weakens. And so 
we have a lot of groups or a lot of territories of the Ottoman Empire that actually start to break away from it. And so two important examples of this are Egypt and Greece. So in Egypt, what we have is the French under Napoleon actually invaded Egypt. And so after Napoleon leaves to go back to France, there's basically a power vacuum. And so what happens is we have the Mamluks who were in Egypt and they try to rebel against the Ottomans. So what the Ottomans do is they send this general guy named Muhammad Ali. And so he manages to retake control of Egypt. And so the kind of problem, I guess, is that rather than being super, super loyal to the Ottoman, uh, Muhammad Ali kind of makes Egypt more autonomous and so they have more control over themselves. So they also uh, end up expanding into Arabia where they fight against the Wahhabis who are an Islamic fundamentalist group and so they get control of Mecca and Medina. And then Muhammad Ali's son Ibrahim ends up conquering Syria in 1831 to 1832. And so later on the pattern that we'll have is that the Europeans will let the Egyptians rule but there will be some limited power for these Egyptian rulers because the Europeans want more influence. And so we also see this with the Suez Canal. And so this is built in 1869, where we have it links the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean, which is huge for trade. And so because the Western, so what we have the French people who are coming in to build this canal, then the Western influence there increases. So now going back to Muhammad Ali. And so he reforms Egypt, actually. And so there are five main things that he does. So first, he kind of reforms the army. So he Westernizes it and he creates mandatory conscription where you have to basically serve in the army if you're a man. And so this is a definitely a contrast to the Janissaries where you basically kidnap people and then you force them to be part of your military where you have this elite group. And then we also have westernization. So for example, military officers were actually sent to France to get their education. And then number three, we have industrialization. So this is a huge thing. They shifted from kind of this agricultural-based society into having textile factories, a navy, and then armament factories. And then they also taxed the peasants more. And so this meant that a lot of peasants had to give up their land back to the government. In addition, they also secularized, which is basically non-religiousified, religious land. So this gave more land to the government and that meant they would have more income. And lastly, he also started a newspaper and he had a lot of texts converted from French to Arabic. So this is one example of a country where Egypt is still technically part of the Ottoman Empire, but they're definitely a lot more autonomous after. Alright, so another example of a group of people who we have basically free themselves from the Ottoman are the Greece. So what we have is the Greece basically rebel because they want freedom. And so there's the Battle of Navarino. And so what happens there is the Ottomans, with the support of Muhammad Ali, fight against the Greece. But the thing is that the Greece actually have support from other European powers. So for example, Russia, France, Great Britain are all supporting Greece. So what happens is that Greece ends up gaining its independence. So this is another good example of a country that basically frees itself from the Ottoman. And the last example we have of this is going to be the Balkan crisis. So basically in Bulgaria, Romania, and Serbia, what we have is these people are discontent with the Ottoman Empire, and so they basically end up getting controlled by the Russian and the Austro-Hungarian empires. So one example of this is Serbia. So after a very short Russo-Turkish war, which is Russians versus the Ottomans, we have the Congress of Berlin, where Serbia, with the help of Russia, sets up their own hereditary dynasty. And then Ottoman the Ottoman Empire is also losing power in other places. So, for example, France takes control of the colony of 
Algeria and North Africa, and then Britain gains control of Cyprus. And so the reason why the Ottoman Empire is really losing all this territory, there are two major reasons. And so the first one is that nationalism is really becoming more of a thing. So for example, in places like Greece, where they want their independence, because they all feel united under a single culture, this basically kind of is one major reason why they want to be free from the Ottomans. And another reason is European influence. And so the Western European powerhouses, so like France, Great Britain, they really want to be able to kind of control these other areas. And so they do this in one way by helping other countries free themselves from the Ottoman. All right, and so the next thing to talk about is what did the Ottomans kind of do in response to industrialization? And so the general pattern we have for reform in the Ottoman Empire is we have the Ottoman sultans who are trying to reform the empire, but they basically face resistance from two groups. So we have the Janissaries and the Ulama. So let's talk about three important people and events. So the first person we're going to talk about is the Sultan Selim III. And so he ruled from 1789 to 1807. And so he tried to reform and westernize the Ottoman Empire, but like we said earlier, he faced backlash from the Janissaries and the Ulama. So the Janissaries were basically the group of elite warriors who were basically kidnapped people from other countries. And so from other countries that the Ottoman had control over. And so they didn't want to have westernization and industrialization because they didn't want to lose their power because the Janissaries had a lot of privileges and so they didn't want to give those up. Next, we have the Ulama who were kind of motivated by similar reasons. And so they were kind of the religious scholars who helped to run the government. And so similarly, they had a lot of power and they didn't want to lose that due to westernization. And so Sultan Selim's reforms were limited to only new army forces. So he only managed to westernize the new army that he could develop. And so the Janissaries still remained very tied up to their old cultural beliefs. And so he actually, Sultan Selim, got assassinated by the Janissaries. So that's that's fun. And so the next ruler we have is Mohammed II. And so what he did is he took a more firm stance on this because he actually totally abolished the Janissaries. He had the new army was westernized. So for example, there was an artillery artillery unit that was trained by Europeans and he also reformed the tax system so rather than having the Janissaries basically get taxes from local groups which could lead to a lot of corruption he had all these people pay their taxes to the central government which would then pay the army in addition he also um, led to more roads being built as well as a postal service being established and so the next thing we have are the Tanzimat reforms. So these are basically a group of reforms that occur after Muhammad II. And so here are the main things that happened during the reform. So the first thing is that the sultans really tried to weed out the corruption in the central government because there are a lot of corrupt officials who are basically just taking money away. And then we also have a transition to secular education. So whereas before we have the ulama who are the Islamic religious scholars who run education, now we have secular or non-religious education which is available to most people. And then we have roads, canals, and railroads being developed as well as the law system being codified. So this helped kind of establish unity and standardization throughout the Ottoman Empire, as well as the development of a commercial and penal code. So when foreigners want to come and trade, this will help them out. Next, we also have legal reform. And so um, even though most people in the Ottoman Empire are Islamic, now we have basically religion and race or ethnicity become less important when you're looking at the law. So everyone's under the same under the law. And we also have the Ottoman Empire starting to regu regulate the millet, which is basically the legal system of the other groups who aren't Islamic, so for example, the Christians. And so 
One other kind of important guy we have to talk about is Abdul Hamid. And so he was actually agreed to have an elected legislator, so maybe splitting the power more. But then he ended up going against his ideas when he basically just suspended the, um, the legislator. So this was one example of a sultan who kind of was like, yes, let's westernize. And then he was like, wait, no, let's not. And so one other important thing to note is that these reforms actually benefited men more than women. So... Um, as we see this pattern a lot during history, women generally don't have very much power. So all these reforms in the army, commerce, government, these mostly benefit men because they're the only people who can actually participate in these events. And women also lose the indirect rights they had under the Islamic religion. Alright, now we're going to talk about how European influence really increased in the Ottoman Empire during this industrial period. And so the first thing we have is the Germans tried to start a railroad inside of the Ottoman Empire. And so what happens is the Sultan grants the people who come from Europe to build this railroad extraterritoriality, which basically means that they don't have to follow Ottoman rules and they can basically break rules that are um, set by the Ottomans and they only need to follow the rules that are in their native country. So this kind of makes... Um, the native Ottoman people unhappy. And then we also have capitulation, which is basically the Ottoman Empire grants economic rights and privileges to foreign countries, so especially European countries. And so this ends up draining Ottoman resources. And another problem we have in the Ottoman Empire is that there are fewer exports and the agricultural econo economy is really going down. So this is also another cause of why the Ottoman Empire starts to weaken. And so in response to all of this, European influence, we also have the Young Turks, and so they actually promote westernization, and they also promote this idea of Turkification, which is the idea kind of promoting nationalism, so we should get all these, like, Christians and minority groups to kind of convert and be more Turkey, Turkey, I guess. And then we also have scapegoating, so some Young Turks also started to blame the Armenian Christians, other minority groups, for all these problems, and so... The Western um, influence in the Ottoman Empire actually led to a lot of resentment because the capitulation and as well as the extraterritoriality made the Ottomans kind of resent this foreign influence. And so this leads to them allying with the central powers during World War One, which later leads to the demise of the Ottoman Empire. And so another thing is the Europeans definitely wanted more influence in the Ottoman Empire, right? Because they want to take advantage of the trade and take advantage of basically the money and getting more money back to Europe. And so there's this idea of the Europe, the Eastern question. And so Europeans, basically, even though you can see that they did support a lot of uprising against the Ottomans, they still wanted to support and prop up the Ottoman Empire. So even though the Ottoman Empire is starting to become known as the kind of sick man of Europe, they didn't want to have the Ottoman Empire totally like get um, disappear because then there would be a power vacuum and they, so the Europeans were worried that a new strong empire might arise. So this is a, one reason why they still kind of supported the Ottoman Empire. Okay, now we're going to look at how the Chinese reacted to industrialization and increasing Western influence. So some general background information. Right now in China, we have the Qin Dynasty. And so this basically arises after Li Zicheng, who is a Chinese scholar, he revolts against the Ming dynasty. And so what happens is the Manchus basically pretend to support the Ming, but then they're like, psych. And so they actually become the new rulers of China, establishing the Qing dynasty. And so they initially have some backlash against Chinese culture, but then later they end up kind of undergoing signification where they adopt Chinese culture. All right, now let's look at how the 
Chinese Empire actually interacted with the Europeans. So initially, we actually have the Chinese have more power than the Europeans. So for example, the Chinese regulated their trade with Europe and they limited it to only one port in Guangzhou or more commonly known as Canton. And so they also only took silver from Europe. And so this made the Europeans unhappy because they also wanted to sell their own European goods to China to make money. And so we have Lord McCartney, who's a British envoy, and he tries to get a better trade deal for the Europeans. But the Chinese are like, no, you, because they don't really want European products. And they're also suspicious of foreigners. But this tide of or this kind of trend where the Chinese have more power than the Europeans starts to change after the Opium War. And so what we have is the Chinese really like the opium that the Britain that the British people bring to China. And so what happens is the government is not really happy about this. So they seize all these opium shipments. And so Britain is kind of angry because they're like, this violates the rules of free trade. And so what they do is they invade China because they really want to get that income from opium. And so the Chinese actually lose to the British because they don't have a powerful navy. And so what happens after this is we have the Treaty of Nanking. And so what happens is the British get more posts for trade, and then they're also granted extraterritoriality, which you'll remember when we talked about it earlier with the Ottomans, is basically the British don't have to follow the Chinese rules or laws. And then we also have Hong Kong being given to the British. And so later on, the British will actually do, um, start the HSBC, which is a bank in Asia that gives the Europeans even more influence. And so one other important thing is that China is really not um, having as much power anymore. And so one other change that happens is that we have spheres of influence where basically different areas of China, their trade is kind of regulated or taken advantage of by different European groups. And then we also have the open door policy by the USA, which basically grants equal trading rights for all these other countries in China. So this is another example of how Chinese power is really diminishing. And so one example of this is the Taiping Rebellion, which is basically because a lot of peasants and a lot of people are basically mad at the Qing Emperor because, first of all, remember, he's foreign, so he's Manchu rather than ethnically Chinese, and he also lost in the Opium War, so he in the Opium War, so people kind of regret, uh, regret this and resent this. And so another issue is that there's total social stratification where the peasants are still paying most of the taxes. And so we have Hong Xiu Quan, who's a Chinese Christian. And so he gets this belief that he is Jesus's younger brother. And so he wants to start a new Christian empire in China. And so what happens is the rebellion actually manages to conquer Nanjing. And at the, their peak, they actually have control over Nanjing and the Yangtze River Valley, but the Chinese end up putting down this rebellion with the help from the French, the British, as well as local warlords. And so the reason why the French, the British, all these European powers help to put down this rebellion is because they don't want China to kind of descend into total chaos because then they won't have trade with them. And so China also realizes that it kind of does need to industrialize and modernize. And so the most prominent movement we have is the self-strengthening movement. So some things that happen during this are that there's new military technologies being adopted as well as having a shipyard and more arsenal. And then the French and British actually help the self-strengthening movement because they want China to be more stable so they can conduct trade and basically have Chinese repay their debts to these European countries. And so we also have the development of a diplomatic corp as well as customs and then we have provincial leaders. And so one thing that we have is because remember earlier in the Taiping Rebellion, we had all these local warlords who helped the Chinese put down this rebellion. And so later on, they demand more rights. 
during the self-strengthening movement. And so one kind of major problem with the self-strengthening movement is that even though they did try to modernize and sort of industrialize, there wasn't very major social change. So the peasants were still at the very bottom, still paying most of the taxes. And so this was something that kind of limited or restricted the effectiveness of this self-strengthening movement. And one thing too is we have, similar to the Ottoman Empire, we have some conservative backwash. And so after the Sino-Japanese War, where Chinese really loses kind of badly against Japan, which is kind of embarrassing because Japan is supposed to be a smaller country that's less powerful, people start calling for reform. And so Emperor Guangxu actually agrees to this, but his stepmother, Si, si, si is like, no. And so she actually starts a coup, and so she basically takes control over the government. And so she is definitely a lot more conservative in that she opposes these um industrialization and modernization reforms, she wants to protect traditional society and government. And so she basically says no to any new technology because she doesn't want European influence in China. And so the Boxer Rebellion is basically where the central government and then people who are more conservative in China, they kind of group together to oppose foreign influence in China. So especially they, um, especially they start to target Chinese missionaries and converts. And so eventually CC I don't know if that's the right pronunciation, but eventually she starts to realize that they, China kind of does need to modernize. So she later tries to, um, she later, actually, sorry, she doesn't try to, she does. She abolishes the civil service system, but at this point it's kind of too late because we already have the Boxer Rebellion and she already put down the people who were calling for reform. So she, at the end, she does kind of try to get more modern, but that doesn't really do or change much. And so later on, we have the Chinese Republic being developed. And so we have a guy named Sun Yat-sen. And so he starts a republic in China. And so it's based off of three major principles. So first, there's democracy, and then nationalism, so having pride in your country and sharing culture, and then livelihood, which is basically he's trying to get rid of this unequal wealth distribution and economic exploitation. And so this later leads to, these ideals are later what influenced the Chinese Nationalist Party, or the Kuomintang. And so one more important thing that happens is we actually have a lot of Chinese people start to migrate away from China. So there are some reasons why. So first, we have the British and the Caribbean, and so they want to kind of compete with Brazil, which remember has sugar plantations, and so they need more workers, and so they start to recruit Chinese people. And so a common form of this is indentured servitude, where basically the Chinese will get free passage to go to these plantations or these places where they need to work, and then they just need to work there for five to seven years. And so some other places we have this are Australia and Mexico, where they need more people to come there, and so this motivates more Chinese people to move to different places around the world. And another reason why all these Chinese people are starting to leave is due to the Taiping Rebellion. So remember, a lot of people are really poor or they're starving, and so they really just don't want to stay in China, so they move, and this causes migration. And um, actually, a response to this is there's some xenophobic backlash. So for example, in America, actually, we have the U.S. Congress passes the Chinese Exclusion Act, which basically prevents any new Chinese people from coming in. We also have the white Australia policy, where Australians really want more white people to come in rather than having pe Chinese people enter. And then we also have the quota system, where there's basically a limit on how many people can come into a different a country like maybe Australia or the U.S., and so now we're going to compare the Ottomans and the Chinese. And so the first thing that we have is that initially they're both very strong. So for example, the Chinese under the Qing Dynasty, we have Qianlong and Kangxi. And so they initially have better trade 
with the Europeans because they can regulate the trade at Canton. And then in similarly in the Ottoman Empire, we have Suleiman the Magnificent, and he spreads the Ottoman Empire very, very far, and they even go all the way up to Vienna. But then we have the Ottoman and the Chinese, because they fail to modernize and industrialize like these Western European powers did, they start to become weaker relative to these European countries such as Brit uh, Britain and France. And so eventually they do try to reform, but they don't do it fast enough. And so because also there's definitely some backlash from the more conservative groups, so in the Ottoman Empire, that's the Janissaries, and in the... Chinese empire that's going to be the conservatives like CC and so they try to reform but and generally they try to you know modernize their army modernize their country but it doesn't really work and then later on they become republics so in Chinese in China we have the Chinese Republic um, under Sun Yat-sen and then in the Ottoman Empire we will talk about this later but after World War One it dissolves into the Republic of Turkey. Alright, the last empire we're going to talk about is Japan, and so Japan was actually different from the Ottoman and the Chinese in that they did modernize, and they did industrialize, and they did it very effectively. And so we basically have this top-down reform where the government and the leaders at the very top try to reform, modernize, industrialize Japan. And so the society basically has, like, goes totally 180 in only around 50 years. And so some background information is that before we have this industrialization, we have the Tokugawa shogunate. And so what happens is after the Tokugawa managed to unite Japan using gunpowder, they basically kind of regress. And so they isolate Japan from other influence as well as kind of getting rid of these gunpowder weapons. And so this all changes after we have Commodore Matthew Perry from the United States. And so he comes to Japan in 1853 and he asks for trade privileges. And so Japan actually agrees to this. But what they later realize is that there are a lot of kind of things that favor the U.S. that are written into the treaty. So, for example, the United States traders are granted extraterritoriality and they're given more privileges. And so this causes a lot of Japanese resentment against foreign powers. And so later on, another important thing we have is that traditionally... We have the shogun, who is who's the person who's actually ruling Japan, and then we have the emperor, who's a figurehead. But this changes during the Meiji era, where we have the shoguns who can't really deal with all this westernization, modernization that's happening in other European countries. And so we have Emperor Mutsuhiro, who really becomes an actual emperor, and he's a lot stronger, and he really helps to reform Japan in the Meiji reforms. And so... The fact that Japan now has this strong emperor also leads to increased nationalism. And so here are some of the reforms that actually happened during these Meiji reforms. And so the first thing that we have is that rather than having Japan being split into all these groups or all these territories that are run by daimyo, daimyo, we instead have prefectures, which are basically districts that are run by the central government. And so this kind of decreases or lessens the power that the daimyo have. And then they also abolish feudalism in the charter. So this kind of gets rid of this like agricultural-based society, as well as developing a constitutional monarchy. So they set a constitution in 1960 where they have also a diet, which is basically a group of elected officials. And then we also have military reform. So they really try to get rid of these samurai, who were the initial group of military people or warriors in Japan. And so they also try to modernize and westernize their army. And so one thing, too, they do is industrialization. So transitioning from this agricultural-based society to more factories and industrialization. And so this happens in kind of two different ways. So we have state-sponsored industrialization, which is basically the government provides fun, um, provides funds and subsidizes this industrialization. And we also have foreign industrialization, which is groups from outside of Japan 
um, sponsor this industrialization. And so one thing that also arises are these zaibatsu, which are basically huge, powerful cor corporations in Japan. And then other reforms include um, establishing a railroad network as well as adapting the or adopting the Western justice system where everyone is equal under the law as well as getting rid of cruel and inhumane punishment. And so some other reforms include universal education. So this helps really improve literacy literacy rates as well as a more efficient tax a more efficient tax system under the Tokyo bureaucracy. And so one thing is that there was resistance, kind of similar to Chinese and Ottoman, where we have the Chinese conservatives who don't really want to modernize, and then in the Ottoman Empire we have the Janissaries and the Ulama. But in Japan we have the samurai who really do not want to modernize because they don't want to give up all the power and influence they had under the original under the original feudal system. So what happens is the government ends up just giving the samurai a final payment and then saying like be gone and so the samurai kind of lose all their power and so some of them will adapt to the changes that are happening in japan and they become genro which are basically statesmen or bureaucrats and then some of them resist the change so for the people who resist the change it's kind of like well sucks to be you and so one thing that happens is that japan is as we said earlier it's modernizing it's definitely getting more industrial and so two really important wars that happened. We have the Sino-Japanese War, which is Chinese versus Japan, and we have the Russo-Japanese War, which is Russian versus Japan. And the kind of really impressive thing is that Japan manages to win both of these wars, which is really surprising because everyone thinks that it's like this small island country that doesn't have much power. And so one especially important one is the Russo-Japanese War because it's the first time a non-Western power has ever, ever defeated a Western empire. And then... This, where the Japan is starting to win these wars and show that they are very influential, it leads to this idea that the Japanese are superior. And so we have social Darwinism, which is the idea that because Japanese people are Japanese, they're basically superior to everyone else. And then there's also this famous text called Goodbye Asia, where basically Japan is like, well, we're better than China and Korea and Vietnam, and we need to go join the modern world of the Western Europe, uh, the Western Europeans. And so... That's what happens in Japan. So compared to the Ottoman and the Chinese, the Japan have this top-down reform, which is a lot more effective in modernizing the country. All right, so now let's do a conclusion of everything that we've talked about in this episode. So the first thing that we have is that because the Western nations all start to gain more power after they industrialize and modernize, they want to be able to influence other areas. And so this leads to a lot of changes in places like the ch uh, in places like China, the Ottoman Empire, and Japan. And so in Japan, we have reform that's really fast, and it's top-down. So we have the samurai are basically abolished, and the military is reformed. There's also some social reform, and then they have their schooling system is based more on Western European knowledge. And then they win wars against China and Russia, and then this leads later to national supremacy. Next, we have the Ottomans. And so the Ottomans originally were under their height, under Suleiman, but then they start to lose land. So, for example, Egypt under Muhammad Ali, and then the Greece gained their independence, and then the Balkan crisis. And so even though they did try to reform, so remember we have the Tanzimat reforms and the Young Turks, it generally was not effective enough. And so what happens is we have the Europeans who basically prop up the Ottoman Empire because they don't want to have a power vacuum in the area where the Ottoman Empire is. And so this kind of debate about what to do in the Ottoman Empire is called the Eastern Question. And so even though the Ottoman Empire does try to reform under, remember, the various emperors, like we have Mahmud, 
the second and Selim the third, there's still backlash by the more conservative groups of the Janissaries and Ulama, which prevents it from being super duper effective. And lastly, we have China. So China was initially a very powerful compared to the Europeans, so they managed to totally dominate trade. But then later, this all changes after we have the Opium Wars and where the Treaty of Nanking grants these Europeans basically more power. And so there are more ports established and then there's extra extraterritoriality is granted to these foreigners and so we also have the Taiping Rebellion where there are people a lot of people who are unsatisfied with the Tsin Emperor after he loses the Opium Wars and so they rebel and then we also have China's response to all this industrialization we have the self-strengthening movement where they do try to modernize slash industrialize but then we have once again similar to the Ottoman Empire we have conservative backlash and so we have the Boxer Rebellion where these conservatives in China as well as em Empress CC she wants to be more conservative and basically get rid of foreign influence. And so China doesn't really successfully manage to reform. And so later on, we have a republic that's established under Sun Yat-sen. So very finally, I guess the main thing to take away from this is that during this time period from the 1750s to around 1900, after the Western Europeans start to modernize and industrialize and they later try to influence other foreign areas. So it's really an issue of whether or not your country, I guess, is effective in its reforms. And so if, it, if it's not, then the Europeans will gain more influence. And if it is, for example, like in Japan, then you might become a very powerful country. So that's it for this episode. And then thank you for listening. And I hope you, this was like helpful.